Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where once again we are going to deliver you our thoughts on uh, three matters at the moment uh, over the next 20 minutes or so. I'm Chris Bowne, the editor of Hotel Analyst, and I'm joined by Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst. Now, the last few weeks we've spent staring at optimistic, uh, very positive reports from hotel operating companies as they point to uh, soaring uh, room rates and, and impressive levels of occupancy and believe that this these are going to continue for the rest of this year and uh, then we flip the page and see lots of gloomy economic forecasts and worries about such things as inflation and recession. So how does this all bear down on those people who are trying to find funds to uh, invest in hotels, to develop hotels or perhaps just to refinance their existing debt in hotels? We've been having a conversation with a few people active in the market this week and uh, yeah, fair enough. The, the the cost of finance is increasing because interest rates are creeping up. Uh, but money is available out there. Um, you probably won't get such a high uh, loan-to-value multiple as you might have hoped for uh, certainly three or four years ago, and perhaps even uh, nine months ago. Uh, but uh, the money's there. There are a variety of lenders, not just the uh, typical high street banks who seem to be uh, in and out of the market without uh, a great deal of consistency. Uh, there are the newcomers and then there are obviously plenty of other specialist lenders. So we spoke to a broker who says, well, there's, there's plenty of opportunities about, out and about there. And um, and also a specialist in development finance who's never been busier and uh, is, is quite happy lending to, to people. So long as they make a provision, they can work out where they think inflation is going to take their development costs. Um, and uh, so adjust, make some adjustments. It's still possible to borrow money and do business whether that's investing in or building hotels very much the issue of the hour is is there going to be a recession or not um and the answer is definitely maybe um <laughs> yep. the, the it, it's looking gloomier and gloomier as we go on um certainly some of the the sources which a few months ago were saying oh absolutely not this is going to be a very soft landing they're saying oh well you know maybe it's looking a bit grimmer than we thought and uh, yeah we are going to see a downturn and uh, the, the 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 probability of a recession is increasing and there is this disconnect as you've mentioned chris between the earnings and the valuations um so um, by that i mean the share price valuations in particular um so uh, analysts at bernstein i think captured this they had a headline are analysts behind the curve in downgrading earnings or is the market too pessimistic quite possibly uh, it's a bit of both but certainly there's a lag in terms of the earnings downgrading i think we're almost certain to see a bit of that um, we have a very difficult period coming up um, depend how gloomy you want to be it could be six months it could be nine months we could be in for a very long drawn out um, sort of economic winter um, I think it's very unlikely that that's going to be the case of the latter but certainly the next six to nine months is going to be pretty tough we're 
there was an interesting uh, presentation I watched from uh, BCA, a group of economic forecasters, and their chief strategist, Davil Joshi. Um, he compared the current period, 2022 uh, and 2023, to 1981, 1982, and looked at the parallels between the two um, as we head into that. And uh, the oft-repeated thing you hear is, well, we haven't had inflation for some time back in the 1980s um, when we had that very significant interest rate hiking um, we'd had 10 years plus of consumer price inflation and this was certainly an argument I have been rolling out um, unfortunately um, BCA um, had a very good answer to that and they said well actually yes we have had inflation um, and it's been asset price inflation we've not had CPI we've not had consumer price inflation but assets have been surging up and, and that did I have to confess give me you know cause to pause my optimism and so um i'm i'm certainly digging more into this getting shall i say uh slightly more cautious about the things i still um, believe that for our sector in particular we haven't yet got back to a full recovery there are still significant areas where you know things are picking up we've got all of these supply constraints still in place where well, we've replaced the sort of the shutdowns the ultimate supply constraint with labor shortages uh, in particular as a, as a supply constraint and that's you know as we overcome them we're going to start getting back into sort of normal health as an industry and i think that's going to take there's still a good sort of 12 months of very strong tailwinds behind this industry and we've used this analogy before and those tailwinds i still think are stronger than the headwinds of the economy especially for our sector so whereas i think other sectors are going to prove more vulnerable us less so and you know we've remarked on this before in terms of the relative vulnerability of this sector historically we've always said yes it's tied directly to the economic cycle and, and perhaps just this time it might be different and looking at that 1980s um, analogy I think that's very instructive we did see um, a, a sort of mini property crash in the early 1980s as you know as interest rates got hiked you know um when they were what gosh 14 15 percent they were eye-watering um what we had we had a chancellor singing in the bath didn't we i think was that was it then was that 1990s i forget now the 80s um the the, the 1980s did see this this very significant hike in interest rates um and that did cause a mini property crash but within sort of two three years we had gone back into growth and there was very significant growth until we had a much bigger crash in the early 1990s so i think there is a risk if you batten down the hatches too severely at the moment you're going to miss this this growth opportunity that is there that's not to say that there aren't reasons to be careful and cautious going forward um we are at the point now where it's cheaper to rent than it is to buy with a mortgage now the last time we had that situation was back in 2008 
and we know what happened in 2008. Now, I simply don't think we have the level of uh, vulnerability in the financial system, in particular with the banks that we had back in 2008. So we're not going to see a repeat of that, I really don't think. But I do think there are uh, reasons for some sensible levels of caution in there, but not to the extent where you're going to miss the opportunities for growth. Uh, tour and travel groups uh, had a bitter time during the pandemic as uh, demand fell off the cliff and they had still had to pay uh, rent on buildings but perhaps as importantly they had to pay their lease payments on aircraft they weren't allowed to operate uh, and so the, the, the leader of the pack TUI had a particularly uh, dreadful time uh, end up with a German government bailout loan to help them through uh, but they're now powering back uh, bookings are strong uh, they are taking money at uh, higher rates than they ever have done and uh, things are looking set fair and in fact they've just uh, paid back a tranche of, of government uh, bailout loan um, they're also at the point where their uh, existing chief executives decided he shall exercise his right to retire so uh, there's an internal appointment uh, of, of the newcomer uh, and he's one of the people who perhaps has had something to do with uh, the change of approach at TUI towards how they handle their hotels um, and he's now coming to the fore. Of course the uh, bright news around TUI and also um, from Foson about Thomas Cook also uh, is tempered perhaps by uh, the um, the flail that's going on at the various European airports as uh, <laughs> as consumers try to get away on their summer holidays that they've booked uh, and there are a plethora of of flight cancellations with uh, perhaps that's down to the airlines perhaps it's also down to the airport operators it's a combination of the two um, but that aside it does look as though um, what we might have viewed a year 18 months ago as as companies that were in severe distress are now bouncing back uh, strongly once more and look to be in a quite a good position to start growing once more uh, the, the interesting thing around TUI is what happens next as regards its uh, its intervention in the hotel business um, and it does look like uh, it wants to get more hotels under its own brands but it doesn't want to pay for them itself. Yeah, the, the thing TUI has alighted upon is the need to have vertical integration um, to give a better customer offer so that they can um, be with the customer right from the booking stage uh, which uh, used to be at the travel agents the bricks and mortar travel agents but in, obviously increasingly is online now as they they shutter some of those uh, travel agencies um, but they want to grab the customer at that point whether it's digital or or uh, via a bricks and mortar route um, and then keep them on the flight and then keep them at the stay um, and then this, of course sell them, sell them lots of experiences while they're on the flight while they're on the coach and while they're at the hotel as well yeah yeah. Yes, indeed. Yes, that that is one of their big sort of uh, sidelines, mm. as it were, that they want to want to add to. So that, that they're very much bought into this vertical integration piece. Now, it had been the case that they were looking to make it asset heavy. They were buying cruise ships and they were buying hotel property to facilitate this. They changed their tune at the end of 2019 on this one, um, pre-COVID, and I think COVID has only. Um, reinforce the need for this sort of asset light uh, growth um, certainly asset right growth as they see it um, that they will retain a number of assets but they um, increasingly the new um, 
uh, hotels they'll be adding will be via franchise or management contract now interestingly i think what this is doing is is turning them into a, a, a hotel brand company as well so they've got so their 2e blue is their main vehicle for this they've got about 100 or so of those and they want to get 300 by 2031 um so over the next just under a decade um so a good steady and realistic um, rate of expansion i think but i think that it is worth noting how much this does put tui head to head with um, hotel brand companies and they are competing uh, for those same hotel owners out in the in the leisure destinations and one of the things i think of the statistics in in tui's latest uh, investor presentation is in terms of the shift to uh how much of their existing um guests went to their own hotels and in the case of german guests um, pre-pandemic um, it was 21 percent went to their own hotels in the first half of uh, this year that share had increased to 27 percent in the uk it went up a couple of percentage points to 24 percent so you know they're clearly looking to drive this vertical integration piece and and use this and i think this means that uh, hotel is looking to tui as a great source of uh, guests um yeah in the short term there certainly be some coming um but increasingly tui is is not a partner i think for the long term and i think tui is is looking to take over that whole show itself so i think there's certainly something uh uh hoteliers ought to be cognizant of and taking on board in terms of the strategy here the second thing is i think you've, you've already touched on that chris is the tours and activities market mm. um and how important that's going to be um for tui they see this as the fastest growing now they're saying look it's not as big as hotels or flights but it's it's the third leg of the tourism stall in terms of their revenues um so flights and hotels the, uh, are bigger but uh, it, but fastest growing is this tours and activities bit um they don't give direct numbers on their on their that that um, business within their um overall uh, segments um but what they do say is that the the overall um tours and activities market is worth 170 billion euros um um, according um, on their numbers in 2019 um, they talk about it being extremely fragmented there's 350,000 plus providers and 90% of which are small businesses with annual sales less than a million so you've got these tiny little businesses and the idea is TUI is going to bring them under its umbrella um, and it sees you know one of its key growth areas is being able to do that and deliver that and it's gone certainly in the first half of 2018 it had 1.2 uh, million excursions the first half of 2022 this had grown to 1.7 million so we're seeing quite significant uh, to growth here on this 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 bit of the excursions business and as you said chris in terms of the geography um tui you know is, is a combo of um, a uk business bought by a german travel uh, tour operator um so not surprisingly germany and the uk are two of the most um, important markets um but also france also scandinavia um but it's looking to build out and get the outbound markets um in spain and italy um and it's also looking to add the us and Brazil 
Brazil is really becoming a global player in that sense and increasingly a vertically integrated global player. Now we've seen Hyatt address some of these issues with its acquisition of Apple Leisure, giving it airlift. Um, I think we hoteliers are going to need to start thinking along similar lines about how they deliver those guests to the hotels in in leisure destinations um, as you know what is Europe's biggest tour operator makes this shift I think it's it, it's a very big change to the overall uh, nature of the the travel market the leisure travel market now we had a conversation a, a week or two ago about the big news that uh, Radisson Americas has been sold to choice hotels uh, and so uh, they'll now be growing the Radisson brands in that part of the world. Um, but we've had a, a look this last week about um, what's going on in the rest of the world across EMEA and Asia Pacific with the other parts of the Radisson Empire that currently sit under Radisson Hotel Group and as of today uh, owned by a Chinese group Jinjiang. Um, so quite a lot of noise and excitement coming out of the uh, the team running this part of the world for Radisson. Um, they're, they're setting themselves out loud some aggressive growth targets, uh, particularly across uh, Asia Pacific. Uh, they are starting, it seems, to uh, also bat for some of the other brands within the Xinjiang Empire, some of the Chinese brands, but also some of the brands from under the uh, French company Louvre Hotels, which of course has, has been held by Xinjiang for a longer period as well. Um, so. Uh, a lot of excitement and, and it would seem as say uh, that uh, they've always had that uh, injection that uh, quite a few people get when they are taken over by a Chinese company which is to uh, get them to slim down, smarten up and get running faster. Um, but all this comes uh, while we, you know we were all very excited a couple of weeks ago for Choice Hotels buying into uh, Radisson Americas. Um, all this comes as, uh, as the Nordic part of Choice Hotels, their master franchisee there, um, has announced they're, uh, they're changing their name from Nordic Choice to, uh, to Strawberry, um, which may be an indication that perhaps Choice is not going to be so, quite so well connected in that part of the world over the coming years. Yes, it's interesting. This, I mean, we we, we spoke about this um, at the time of the announcement, um, the the choice Radisson Americas deal, um, whether this could herald the sort of pullback by choice, um, less focus certainly on, on expansion outside of North America. Um, there's a lot to do in North America for choice, and it could become a very significant player there um, what it does outside uh, remains to be seen there's certainly no signs yet that it's there's a definite pullback happening but um, I, I would suggest that there is a question mark on on its focus given that it's got to make that digest you know it's got to digest the Radisson America's piece and it's got to make that work and its shareholders will be looking to make that work and there is a far bigger opportunity there in the near term than there is in terms of the international growth although the international piece is the longer term play. Um, the difficulty we always have writing about China is it's there's just an absence of information. So Xinjiang, um, it is theoretically what it is, the second uh, biggest hotelier by room count. But in terms of the information available, um, it, it's remarkably thin on the ground and um, that's not been helped um, a subsidiary of Xinjiang Xinjiang Capital which was listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange and you got a little bit of information about what's going on um, 
um, in, within the group thanks to that well that's been delisted now from the Hong Kong exchange that happened in May so I think what was already a pretty obscure outfit is now um, becoming even more opaque um, what impact this has on Ranison? well uh, not huge I don't think um, I would probably take slight issue with what you were suggesting about how the Chinese come in and shake up um, <laughs> um, hotel companies because I don't really see them having done that much at Louvre. No. I mean, you know, and I ask people in the industry what's happened at Louvre and everybody shrugs their shoulders and says, I'm not yeah, really sure. Yeah, we could, we could perhaps um, contrast this it, with it, what's it, happened it, with Huazu and Deutsche Hospitality, where they certainly do seem to be shaken up. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, w I would say that the the least hotel structure of Deutsche um, and the bloodletting that was happening because of the COVID lockdowns in Germany in particular um, has mm. forced them yeah. to shake yeah. it up there. So, yeah, we've certainly seen the, you know, a, a very, you know, big change of um, management there within at Deutsche. Um, but... Um, going back to um the whole uh, Xinjiang peace and Louvre we didn't see a you know um a great deal there that's 2015 that they acquired that um so it, it is from Starwood Capital and it, it's surprising that they've not made more of that but you know at the end of the day this is a essentially economy chain with a bit of mid-scale um the linkages there aren't mm -hmm. that strong um, between the Chinese outbound market um, and they've not made a great deal with that now I, I think Radisson has been a you know one of the most um, aggressive um, uh, hotel chains in terms of growth um, it, it's had a great record in in particularly in emerging markets um, dare we mention <laughs> Russia uh, probably not let's point to Africa they've been very um, busy in Africa was, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but certainly in Africa it's done done very well and um, in Asia Pacific um, and you I think you you write about this at uh, some length in your piece Chris um, um, off the back of the announcement from Radisson Hotel Group um, now it was part of the old Carlson bit now within the non-US rather non-America's bit of, of Radisson and you know they've done very good things there with that Asia Pacific uh, growth strategy uh, becoming one of the leading chains in India in particular um, but they've now set their, their sights on uh, a, a whole bunch of Southeast Asia uh, Vietnam, Thailand um, Australia, New Zealand um, setting up local offices to really drive that growth there so I think they're being super assertive with that and I could certainly see them where they're talking about growing fourfold mm. in terms of the number of hotels by 2025 which is an incredible rate of growth if they can actually mm. deliver that um, so w we will see but I think there is still this overarching question just what is the Chinese and this isn't really you know what the the individual companies will decide to do because ultimately th they get their marching orders from the the um, the Politburo. Does, does the Chinese Communist Party have a Politburo? <laughs> Whatever the, yeah. the Chinese Communist Party, anyway. Um, that they they um, they they tell the hotel companies what's what and what's not. And uh, lately, what and not just hotel mm. companies, generally companies, um, and what's not. It seems is increasingly listing on. Uh, stock exchanges outside of China um, and so we've seen a pause there was a company called um, Ator who uh, big 
biggish Chinese uh, lifestyle hotel company. They were due to IPO uh, a year ago. That's been on pause. Um, and I do wonder just how much of a pullback we will see. I mean, obviously, this is going to hugely impact Huazu with their listing on NASDAQ. Uh, Trip.com, which has uh, nearly 15% stake in Atoll. Um, you know, I wonder what will become of their NASDAQ listing as well. Um, I think we are seeing this geopolitical tension that's there is having an impact and also this need to repatriate cash back to uh the PRC to enable to shore up the sort of property meltdown that's happening there. So the, there's a couple of drivers I think uh, which would suggest that uh, um, we could still see this transaction with uh, Radisson Hotel Group. Now you know as we've seen with Louvre um, we have no idea how long that will take um, so um, but I suspect it will be sooner rather than later um, we'll just have now to time for our see. five star and no star awards and this week Andrew I think you're going on the rails for five stars yeah so we've we've got this ongoing um debate around business travel is it coming back is it coming back and uh, um it was great to see you know, and and uh, well a state-owned operator actually the um in the uk the uh, lner um a london northeastern railway um used to do the flying scotsman I remember as a boy <laughs> i used to have one of those um trains um um anyway um so uh the uh LNER they put out a report uh, railway to recovery the future of business travel um, and the, you know um, like a lot of these things um, it's sort of self-serving in the sense that you need to get back on the road or the rails in this case um, go out meeting people but the, the, the little nugget that came out of that was in the report by business traveller um, on the LNER report um, and they quoted LNER as saying um, it's seeing above 5% growth in business travel week on week. And it doesn't see this slowing down at all during 2022. Presumably it will <laughs> during the train strikes. But uh, outside of that, I mean, this is good news. And I think it's a you know real sign that we are seeing this. And th this notion that we, we can all start talking to each other via video is is not the case we're going to get back to business travel um five stars and no stars this week go to the uh uk government not for the current shambles that they're in but because they've uh, they've got around to launching a review into the impact of holiday homes they've realized that apparently they're being rented out via online websites and apps such as airbnb uh, and that's having a nasty impact uh driving up prices in holiday destinations and uh, uh, so, so the local people can no longer afford a home to live there. Well, surprise, surprise, uh, we've got news that's been happening for quite a number of years. Um, you're probably about five, six, eight, maybe 10 years too late, UK government, in, in taking a look at that. Um, the impact has already been substantially felt and you're gonna upset lots and lots of people who've already invested lots and lots of money in buying second homes that they profitably rent out um, uh, if you start to meddle with all of that. Mm, I'm, I'm, 
yeah i agree i agree with your sentiments there chris i'm, I'm a little oh, okay, i was about to say i've got faith in <laughs> 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 dear me what was i going to say um, <laughs> how crazy is that um but i do have a little bit more confidence i think that, that there is a, a degree of some sense there um now i think there are bonkers bits um where we've got more populist takes mm -hmm. on this certainly yeah. in wales where you are chris um the government there and we're seeing more populist and bonkers sentiment expressed in scotland i hope at the uk government level we'll see a little bit more sanity introduced and it and it's not just about um you know seeing tourists as other you know they're they're not voters therefore they're other we can just um you know <laughs> stick it to them which is you know, it seems to be the mentality that's out abroad that's out there at the moment and i hope that the government's going to demonstrate the uk government this is going to demonstrate a little bit more maturity with that and certainly we've got you know the the tourism minister is nigel huddleston as, as we speak um the ex-google exec <laughs> who covered up uh, well, goodness, he doesn't yes, resign yes, yeah, yeah yeah goodness um well, he, he, yeah, he does seem to be somebody who's actually right. just quietly getting on with things as opposed to getting involved in um, all of the uh, the kerfuffle that goes on. So, um, But, um, yeah, we'll see. Because I think the thing is that I think we have touched on this in the past. Uh, um, you know, Airbnb certainly needs to be regulated and these private rentals need to be appropriately regulated. But um, the first point is that this is not a route to enabling uh, um, them to be taken out of the market for the benefit of hotel co hotel companies and individual hotel operators which is you know some of the push lobbying is certainly um to that effect so uh, you know i i think we don't want to see that the second thing is i think we've got more common cause um with sites like airbnb celebrating the positive impact of tourism on local economies when it's done appropriately now with you know there's been a bunch of stuff um, lately about what's going on say in Barcelona as tourism comes back Amsterdam Venice all of these sort of over tourism destinations we you know we have to as an industry uh, um, you know, acknowledge that there are issues here and do something about them um, and I think we can make common cause with these sites to do that because collectively we can be part of the solution to this working with local government demonstrating that actually you can pivot here so one of the things i think that was smart say the amsterdam um government did was that we like business travelers because they are high spend low impact um, relative to the backpackers which sort of litter up the place and don't spend a lot of cash so from from the point of view of of you know it, it's uh, it, you have to package that up a bit more carefully <laughs> i think if you're a politician and otherwise you get accused of being a uh, snobbish but there is certainly you know you can point out that the high spending high value customer base is something you ought to be pitching for um because it, it, it actually actually improve the quality of life for for local residents extra tax money um and you know great facilities like theaters and galleries and bars and restaurants um can be in place um with the support of these visitors which wouldn't be there if you didn't have these visitors so these are all good things i think to sell our industry and the positive impact it can have on local communities and we ought to make common calls with that rather than celebrating the 
you know the the demise of Airbnb um, and I think I think we're already um, as regular listeners to this podcast will know that we're big bears on Airbnb we think it's not going to be a hugely significant threat to, to hotels anyway so um, you know put, put your um, problems aside and uh, make common cause is would be my suggestion in terms of this government response and on the a positive note we'll make. say goodbye for now <laughs>